0: This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOBN, in Columbia. Good morning to you, good day to you, wherever you might be as you listen to this radio program. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit, and uh, here we are, Monday night. Well, you know, and let me tell tell everybody what's going on with the show real fast. Um, It is uh, the beginning of the year, and I want to start it out on a good note, so for me that means that I will play some Terrence McKenna. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, in about... 45 minutes or so, I will play a a thing uh, that uh, Terrence did in Austin, Texas at the, uh, I forget what it was called, I think it was called the the Whole Life Festival, and uh, anyway, this particular piece is called Light of the Third Millennium, and that'll start right around Midnight, it'll go for an hour, and then I'll be playing one other piece that goes for the, fo- for the following hour that is uh, a production by Larry Norriger that in- includes uh, uh, some music and spoken word from, uh, from Terrence. So we'll have C3 uh, included and uh, providing the music for the first couple hours. We'll weave that in and out of the show, and then we'll have uh, some interesting talk from, from Terrence in between. All right, so we'll be back in just a minute, and let's uh, get things going here. As I said, this is called Inside the Asteroid. It's from Orbit 1. Jeff, one more time. This was 2003, March.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's from, the, the that album is our first year of 2003. And that was, uh, the first show was at Mojo's.
0: Ha. On the, right, uh,
1: cool. On the spring equinox.
0: Is it available? Yeah. At, at uh, C-E-E-T-H-R-E-E dot U-S. That's right. Okay, so the website is C3, and that's... The letter C, E-E, and then the word 3, T-H-R-E-E, dot U-S. Right, not dot com, dot U-S. Dot U-S, all right, yeah. so C3, dot U-S, and C is spelled C-E-E. Right. And And, uh, yeah, there's lots of stuff there. There's some downloads, actually, too. Yeah. And I think that if you go to my website at Radio Orbit, or at dot uh, com actually, and go to the music page, you'll see some stuff over there for C3 as well, and you can download uh, at least one or two tracks, I think, and... Um, anyway we'll talk more to Jeff in a few minutes and tell you a little bit more about c3 but let's play a little mu- a little bit of music here first so again inside the asteroid this is from orbit 1 c3 2003 in at uh, mojo's yeah all right back in a few minutes this is Mike and you listen to radio orbit All right, Inside the Asteroid, C-3. Good stuff from just a couple of years ago, 2003 in March. Okay, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. And it's about 11.17, and thanks to Jeff Wheeler and uh, Mike Robertson and the rest of the guys for providing the music for uh, the show tonight. Thanks a lot. And we'll have uh, some more from C-3 as we move into the program tonight, okay? All right, let's get uh, get on with things here. It's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. It's 11.30, straight up, uh, and it'll be about 30 minutes, and I'll put on uh, the piece from Terrence McKenna that I'm going to present tonight uh, from 1997 called Light of the Third Millennium. And uh, for last week, thanks to Marta and Kenny Hall and Kent Stedman, of course. Had a great time talking to Kenny about old-time music, fiddle playing, string inch, uh, instruments of all sorts and listening to those guys talk about old times and the uh, music scene in Fresno back in the 60s and the 70s and and then uh, all the way up until uh, till today. Of course, Kenny, 82 years old and still consider, you know considered the maestro in Fresno in the uh, traditional music scene. So anyway, that was cool having those guys on the air. And uh, having Marta was a... Uh, uh, an unexpected surprise. I'm glad uh, Marta got to got to be on the air with us for a while too. She was great and uh, really enjoyed her her conversation. So tonight, all right, Terrence McKenna, 1997 from Austin, Texas, and uh, this piece is called "Light of the Third Millennium." We'll hear the music of C3 uh, throughout the show tonight. We've got uh, probably three or four more from C3 coming up next week. We'll have the music of a band called The Wimshurst's Machine. That's right, you heard it, The Wimshurst's Machine. And uh, it's fantastic stuff that's going to accompany the return to the program of Jay Widener. And so I'm really looking forward to have Jay on the show again and also to the music of The Wimshurst Machine. So you guys will have to check it out. It's great stuff. And again, independent music coming from very interesting sources. This one uh, dug up by Larry uh, my faithful and wonderful webmaster, who just does the greatest stuff, and in fact, uh, one of the pieces that you're going to hear tonight, uh, starting at about one o'clock, will be something that Larry produced, and uh, it's just a great, uh, a great work actually. And I'm really pleased uh, that he did it, and that I get to present it and debut it actually here tonight. No one's ever heard this before. And I hope you all enjoy it. That's coming up at the 1 o'clock hour. And uh, that will go uninterrupted until until 2. And it's awesome. And tonight, uh, if you're, if, if, if I didn't mention it earlier, and I should have, tonight's a great night to start your tape players rolling or your digital recorders rolling, whatever, because there's going to be some really good stuff coming across the airwaves tonight and uh, a lot of it that might um, benefit you to hear again some of this stuff uh takes a little while to sink in, if you know what I mean. Anyway, so, look, I've been... uh, There were a couple of reasons why I'm doing the show tonight with Terrence. For people who have listened to the program in the past, uh, for any great length of time, you know that he's someone who had a great impact on me and continues to, even though he died uh, April 3rd uh, in the year 2000. Uh, But he is a... uh, a tremendous influence on me and has been for many years. And his brother Dennis continues to, and we'll talk a little bit more about Dennis as uh, we get closer to the top of the hour and we talk a little bit more about what 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 the McKenna brothers were about and are about. But anyway, part of this goes back to the show with Joseph Chilton Pierce that we had a couple of weeks ago. And I've had... Uh, that on my mind a lot and I've been trying to think of alternatives and different solutions and different ways to approach the problems that he points out so clearly. And the question is this uh, is how can we as adults modern people uh, quickly move from the rationalist, sort of brain-centered, intellectual realm into the new irrational realm of of heart-centered intelligence, what Joseph Chilton Pierce has talked about for all these years. For children, uh, you know, People like Joe Pierce, who have been pointing this out now. Joe's been at it for 40 years. 82 years old now, as well. <laughs> Same as Kenny. Interestingly, uh, the answer for children lies in in, uh, in bonding. And and if you didn't listen to the show with Joe Pierce from a couple weeks ago, and you're interested in this stuff, you should go back to the archives over at MikeHagen.com and just click on the archive page, and you can download that interview with Joseph Chilton Pierce. Uh, but, I'm not gonna go deeply into it here, but, but bonded children, uh, to their parents, to their mother in particularly, will, will, uh, will not, that situation will never manifest unless the parents of those children also understand what, what, what's going on. So, and that's why it's such a cyclical problem, and why we have a couple of three, four generations now of troubled children and the highest rates of child suicide of any country on this planet. And also uh, a country that, in spite of all its technological prowess and supposed medical know-how, is number 28 on the list of infant mortality in developed nations. In other words, there are 27 countries Ahead of the United States of America when it comes to infant mortality. We have six children out of every 1,000 children that are born in this country that die. And that's, uh, like I say, there are 27 countries that have less than that. So anyway, we're not uh, immune to trouble and to uh, mistake and it's difficult to admit sometimes, but we've made some great mistakes in these areas. And so now, you know, we're we're pushing critical. You know, anybody who's paying attention knows that things are getting pretty wild and wacky. And I don't propose to know what's going on, but something is going on and you know no matter which position you take or whatever if as we talked about last week if you if you propagate all these different curves you know it becomes pretty apparent that business as usual is no longer on the menu you know how much longer so how do we repair Those of us who are already grown up, who are in, you know, in positions of, you know, responsibility in our communities and in, you know, jobs and government and the military and whatever, wherever we are, as adult people, responsible citizens, you know, how are we supposed to, uh, how can we quickly do it, you know, repair? people that are damaged emotionally, physically, spiritually. So I've been thinking about it a lot, you know, because this is what jo- Joseph Pierce points out, that this is the, the dilemma. He's not the only one that points it out, but he points it out really clearly and, and, and shows the cause, or at least one of the causes. A significant one in the way we bring our children into this world technologically, and set them up behind the eight ball to begin with. But uh, anyway, there may be more than one answer, but uh, but for my money, in the time frames that we are talking about, uh, in a freaking hurry. In other words, you know, we don't have a whole lot of time. Uh, my bet is on one answer, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Botanical, sacramentals, psilocybin, and uh, uh, the other plant-based psychedelics. And we're going to talk about it with uh, one of the men who could talk about it better than anybody else. And that was Terrence McKenna, and so that's coming up in... Uh, in about 20 minutes, okay? All right, upcoming guests tonight, as I said, Terrence, uh, music of C3 and uh, a wonderful uh, audio presentation from Larry Norriger uh, that's a spoken word piece uh, accompanied by uh, a musical composition written and produced by Larry Norriger. Um, Next week, Jay Widener, as I said before, will be talking about his new DVD, 2012, The Odyssey. That's something that uh, I'm looking forward to talking with Jay about and to seeing, actually. That's, uh, it features Gene Houston, John Major Jenkins, who actually will be on the pr- on the program here um, on February 6th, I think it is. It's either February 6th or 9th. I don't have a calendar in front of me, but whatever that Monday is, I want to say it's the 6th. Anyway, so February 6th or the ninth, whatever it turns out to be, John Major Jenkins, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, Greg Braden will be, uh, uh, is actually with, uh, appears in this program that Jay has put together, and uh, William Henry, some other people. Uh, the week after Jay Widener is on the program, Paradise Newland, or the former Paradise Newland, she goes by the name of Star these days, so we'll have her tell us uh, about that story and uh, at any rate we'll be talking with star about water birth and about the uh the birthing centers that uh she's involved in uh, in building in Hawaii and that reminds me again of that uh, uh that rally to legalize midwifery my god that just really gets under my under my skin um anyway all right. Uh, the week after Paradise is here. Uh, the week after Star is here. I should say, Dr. Paul Laviolette. Again, very excited to have Dr. Paul back on the program. Uh, John Major Jenkins the week after that, and so uh, you have a a one month crash course in eschatology uh, with the next <laughs> the next few weeks, including tonight. So it should be enjoyable and hopefully uh, hopefully new stuff for uh, for people who are out there listening to the show. All right, Dennis McKenna, of course, will be on the show back in March and uh, with a couple other people throughout the summer, Stephen Duner and uh, Richard Glenn bohr both going to uh, be doing programs with Dennis in the next few months. So that's all coming up, all right? The email address, orbitradio at AOL.com, www.mikehagan.com. Go to the archives page. You can download any of these programs and listen to them. Um, go to the news page there's all kinds of interesting stuff there most of which we won't be able to get to tonight although I'll try to read a couple of quick stories after the break here and uh, let's see the phone number in the studio if anybody has any reason to call uh, during the break here is area code 573 or eight seven four five six seven six all
2: right
0: eight seven four five six seven six one eight hundred eight nine five All right, so this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a minute. We'll do a quick version of space weather and uh, try to grab a story or two from the news, and then we will get with it with light of the third millennium, Terrence McKenna on Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few. This is a little bit more from C3. This is from their... Version 8 program set to a mix that Jeff made for me a few months ago. It's killer. Check it out. C3 Radio Orbit. This is Mike. We'll be back in just a few minutes. have it, more good stuff from C3, and we'll have a few more from them as we uh, move along the program tonight. Okay, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. All right, let's do space weather here real quick. Pretty much quiet, uh, quiet days on the sun lately. Just one little bitty sunspot right now looking towards the earth, yeah, and other than that, it's sort of a blank slate up there. Solar activity should uh, remain. Relatively low, unless something strange happens, which is known to happen once in a while. But uh, uh, right now, as it looks, pretty calm on the sun. If uh, you're interested in the planet Venus, like I am, I love to watch it. And over the last few months, it's been a common and familiar sight in the evening sky as the sun's setting. But uh, we're getting to the point where that's not going to be uh, the case anymore. Venus is now sort of sneaking over right towards uh, the same area of the sky where the sun goes down, and uh, the sun, the light from the sun will start to to block out Venus as Venus moves in between the Earth and the sun. So anyway, if you've been enjoying it, uh, you've got a couple couple more days, maybe a week uh, before uh, Venus sort of says goodbye for a while. All right, but if you go uh, on the web actually and Check out the SOHO cameras. You know, I talk about these cameras that look at the sun. And they're installed on a satellite that we call SOHO for short. But it's called the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory. So anyway, it looks at the sun, takes pictures, and then puts them up on the web. Or some robot puts them up on the web after some other robot decides if we can look at them or not. And then, uh, anyway, sometimes we get to see amazing things. Well, right now, Venus is sort of transiting in front of the sun and uh, in between the Earth and the sun. So this uh, appears on the camera, the Soho camera. It's really cool. And you can go on the web and actually watch that uh, and see the live shots of it as it's happening. And it's pretty uh, amazing, actually, uh, when you think about what's actually happening. But uh, at any rate, uh, go on the web, just Any of your search engines and put in NASA SOHO, and I'm sure that'll pull it up for you. Or you can also uh, go over to my website and click on the Space Weather page, or you can go to spaceweather.com. They'll always help you out. You can go to cyberspaceorbit.com. Kent will always help you out. But anyway, lots of great ways to see what's happening on the sun or in that vicinity, and it's really cool right now as Venus crosses in front. So, and I'm sure that has some sort of astrological significance as well. If we have any uh, astrologers out there, I'll give us a call. Let me know what that means, all right? All right, so as I said, in just a few minutes, Terrence McKenna, we'll talk about uh, some interesting stuff. Maybe some ways out of the trap. Uh, what else is happening on uh, in the sky here? January 9th, that's today. One of Uranus's moons, Cressida, was discovered. Stephen Sennott did that. He also discovered a couple of, a couple of other moons. This was 20 years ago. Uh, Desdemona, Rosalind, and Belinda. Those were a few days later. But anyway, you know, things being discovered all the time still. We have all this news about Pluto and then different other objects out beyond the orbit of Pluto and now discovering extra solar planets, planets around other different stars, planets now that become looking more and more Earth like. And it turns out that it's probably more that Earth isn't really special uh as far as planets go, there's probably lots and lots of them out there that are very similar. That's pretty much being being shown now. Uh but you know the question of life is one that has yet to be answered, but we'll see. I don't know if we'll see in our lifetime. Depends how long our lifetime is. Anyway, we'll see. So, uh, alright, let's do this. Let me tell you really quickly about what we're going to hear tonight, okay? And the reason that I think it's important. In 1971, uh, something happened. Something astonishing happened. And I don't know exactly what it was, but I've been interested in it for a long time. And it happened on the night of March 4th and the morning of March 5th in 1971. It went on for a couple of weeks afterwards. And it involved Terrence and Dennis McKenna. And those two guys underwent an experience that eventually came to be known as the Experiment of La Chorrera. And uh, La Chorrera is a ranch, so to speak, a mission in the Andes, on the coast, uh, the border, I should say, between Colombia and Peru. And uh, anyway, 35 years ago, And what happened to those guys during that particular period was a formative experience that carried both of them uh, throughout the rest of their uh, careers. Dennis is, of course, ongoing. One of the most respected and provocative ethnopharmacologists on the planet, of course, Dennis McKenna. And uh, his brother Terrence... Was the teacher or the teach, as he was called back there in the jungles in South America in nineteen seventy one and what they came across was something that Terence could not stop talking about for the rest of his days, and he said it over and over and over again in many different ways and he had a message, and we're gonna continue to uh, spread the message tonight, and I'll bring that to you here in just a minute. I guess uh, actually, I think we might as well just do top of the hour now, and uh, come back in just a few minutes with with Terrence McKenna and a great piece of recorded material that was done in 1997 called Light of the Third Millennium. Nearly uh, nearly nine years old now, uh, but as fresh as the Pentium chip. All right, we'll be back in just a minute. Uh, this is Mike, you listening to Radio Orbit, and uh, in a few minutes we'll have Terrence McKenna. You're listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. And we'll get on with it right now. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. And one more time, this is Terrence McKenna. Uh, Terrence McKenna. This is called Light of the Third Millennium. It was recorded from the, uh, the Whole Life Festival in Austin, Texas in 1997. We'll take a couple of breaks uh, throughout this piece. The first one's at about 20 minutes or so. And uh, then another 20 minutes or so after that, we'll take another break. So, anyway... Uh, Enjoy it. We'll be back in just a little while. This is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit.
1: All right. Hmm. Wonderful to see so many people turned out uh, after having just been here a scant uh, year ago. I'm delighted that they invited me back. Uh, The deal is no jokes about Camaro raffles, no jokes about Moldavite suppositories. So just consider it as if it didn't happen. (laughs) No, it it is a pleasure to be here. I'm fascinated by this green and intelligent part of Texas. Uh, I grew up with all the prejudices against Texas that you have in western Colorado, where Texans arrive to kill our elk once a year and then depart and leave us once again bereft of glory and drawl. So so uh, I I did a radio show, some of you may have heard it, uh, and it was an occasion to be up at the campus, wonderful university. I see a lot of universities, and a lot of them look like Air Force bases, and to You're very fortunate to have the University of Texas at Austin. There are some great people associated uh, with that faculty. Okay, let me get a wet whistle here. How many people have read at least one of my books? A lot of people. Well, so what I'm thinking is, uh, I have some things on my mind, and I'll run through that, but I'd like to leave a lot of time for Q&A, because my thing has several facets, and maybe you're interested in Salvia Divinorum, and I'm raving on about modeling and animation, or. Maybe you're interested in the end of history, and I can't shut up about serotonin metabolism. So this is all part of the picture, but driven by your needs and your agenda, I think it's much more uh, fruitful. It's much more fun for me. The audiences in these things are are the great joy. And, And I should say to you, As I say to all my audiences, uh, the psychedelic community is still uh, small and tight, and we look pretty much like everybody else out there. That's part of our victory, I might point out. It's not that we came to look like them, it's that they finally let it down and now they all look like us. But a gathering like this is an occasion to actually see your local psychedelic community. So take a look around. Somebody in this room has what you need. And uh, it's like an intelligence test, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) All social interaction is, it, it turns out. Okay. I guess I should bring you up to date on what I've been doing before I plunge into the heart of this since uh, my own life is my own adventure and how I then read the larger picture of reality. I think everybody sees their their life that way. After all, if you're not the hero in your novel, uh, what kind of novel is it? You need to do some heavy editing. Uh, Robert Anton Wilson once said, he said, uh, we should define reality as a plot run by a closely knit group of powerful insiders, yourself and your friends, of course. I mean, if you don't believe that, you have a loser's scenario, and who needs a loser's uh, scenario? So what I've been doing since I saw you last uh, is basically a lot of traveling. I went uh, to South Africa last October and that was an education. It was a non stop two week intensive education in humanness, third world colonial politics, Dutch Afrikaner history. A whole bunch of things I knew very little about. Uh, it, It was inspiring, challenging, amazing. Africa, the human home, is right now the great theater of struggle for the human soul. How we deal with the political and social problems of Africa is going to say a great deal about how we will be judged by the future. The problems of Africa are almost entirely created from outside of Africa, and uh, the solutions which are being produced on native soil need uh, all the nurturing and support that we who, who cheer on the brotherhood of man can uh, give it. And then in February I went to Australia. And if I had known about Australia what I know now 30 years ago, I'm sure my life would be very different. I said last night at a book signing, it's weirdly like Texas. I mean, it's large, it's largely empty, and uh, it has a very eccentric population of hard-driving folks uh, who, who are lovely to party with and know how to barbecue. So, uh, what more can I say? Okay, so enough with personal reportage, local color, putting us all at ease and all the rest of that forensic malarkey. Cut to the chase. When I think about talking to an audience like this, I go through my... Toolkit and try to say, you know, what is cogent, what's meaningful, what can bring us forward. And there seem to be, it's a changing list, but at the moment, what seems to be going is the old perennial psychedelic alteration of consciousness for purposes of personal exploration, social reformation, creation of a new art a new politic that's one of the of the major pieces of the puzzle another major piece is uh, the new communications technologies and I mean not only the internet but the software that allows us each and every one of us to be animators filmmakers visually expressive people who can produce emotionally moving works of great depth and beauty. This is something that technology has brought to us. And strangely enough, a technology largely produced by psychedelic heads, people like ourselves, I told you last year, I think, when we discussed drugs and technology that the only difference between a computer and a psychedelic was one was too large to swallow. Well, you know, great progress has been made in 12 months. Uh, In another three or four years, we will be able to swallow the computer. Some of us may never be able to swallow it. Uh, The third piece of the puzzle, which is sort of mine alone to play with, since no one else wants to be this publicly crazy, is uh, the whole business of novelty theory, the approach of a singularity in time that is sculpting the human and natural world, and that is so large an object in the intuitive sphere of human beings that it almost has religious overtones. And then the question for me and the question for you, I suppose, is how much of this can you take without having to take at all? How much of these ideas can you imbibe without having to go uh, the whole distance? And the answer is, you know, it's a personal matter for each person to feel into their circumstance, which means their history, both psychedelic and non-psychedelic, and then to feel into the projection of their future. Do you think you are repeating the lifestyles and algorithms of your parents and grandparents ad infinitum back to Adam? Or do you feel like you've stepped to the front of the train of human evolution, that you are making yourself new every day? If we reach too far back into the stabilizing metaphors of the past, we get rigidity, habit, limitation. If we step too quickly into the unlimited freedom of the future we lose our grounding uh... socialism did this over the past hundred years and because it abandoned any contact with a realistic human psychology the best intended people ended up creating nightmare societies if your theory is not true to the nature of humanness you will end up Beating human beings like metal on the anvil of your ideology, and this creates great human suffering, and uh, and uh, historical catastrophe. And I maintain that our own society suffers from an, a, a failure to adequately model and reflect the true nature of human beings. We have ideas. We have ideals that get in the way of realism and immediate experience. And when I was thinking about all of this and tr- how to put it into a metaphor that would be appealing and amusing and, and lead people to look deeper into these things, uh, I began to play with the idea uh, it's a religious idea you all have heard although probably more often in English than in Latin the thought in principio ad verbum ad verbo caro factum est which means in the beginning was the word and the word was made flesh this is the great overarching myth of Western religion. It equally informs Islam, Christianity, Judaism. These three great flavors of monotheism all accept this primary statement, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was made flesh. What does it mean, for a moment, taken away from the tired exegesis of the cults that have hammered at it for so long. What does it mean in and of itself? It means that language is somehow the privileged medium of exchange between human beings and the divine. That the descent of the word into flesh makes the flesh more than flesh, makes the word more than the word. The union of flesh and word launches the cosmic drama of fall and redemption that is the ur-myth of Western society. And for centuries and centuries, we've concentrated on one end of this story of the fall, and the redemption. We have concentrated on the fall. But meanwhile, through all the grimy betrayals and bloody backsliding of human history, the word has quietly advanced its agenda. And I've been thinking a lot about this recently because in the new book I'm writing, I'm writing a lot about spoken language, speech. And I've come to a conclusion that typical of me is far from orthodoxy and far from much cover provided by anybody else's ideas on this matter. I've come to the conclusion that Language is very old, thinking is very old, communicating is very old by glance, by gesture, by dance, by meme, by intuition, but speech is very recent. It's a technological innovation as fresh as uh, the Pentium chip or the spinning wheel. It's something someone invented somewhere. It's the most successful technological leap forward ever made. It's the discovery of symbolic signification that a noise, meaning nothing, can by convention be given a meaning. And that that meaning will then attend that utterance wherever it occurs in the presence of those who have joined in the agreement that attaches the symbol to the meaningless utterance. It's a coding breakthrough. Somebody hacked this about 35,000 years ago, and immediately, as forms of media have a way of doing, it swamped the previous methods of communication because, A, it worked in the dark, uh, suddenly, uh, evenings were not so boring anymore. Uh, it worked in the dark. It also, the touchy-feely forms of communication were generally one-on-one and related probably to having sex or aggressive physical encounters. But suddenly, one voice could reach many, and many could respond. And virtual reality was born at that moment, not here in the late 20th century, but at that moment because acoustical environments laden with symbolic meaning became the name of the game. Stories is what we call these things. And they are uh, the proper use of the advanced form of media known as human speech. It's using human speech to create three-dimensional scenarios that unfold and everyone is carried along with the drama and the wonder of it. From that beginning, and in a series of successively accelerating leaps, the word has made its way into the world Uh, it's interesting that uh, straight linguists and paleolinguists believe human language is no more than 35,000 years old imagine that we possess homo sapiens sapiens skeletons 110,000 years old people like the person who rode with you on the bus yesterday people that modern and yet the experts tell us no one spoke until 35,000 years ago no one wrote until 5 or 6,000 years ago reading and writing is simply a carrying forward of the original program of signification first using acoustical signals, and then some other hacker had the brilliant idea, well, if we can use sound to carry abstract associations, why not abstract symbols to carry abstract associations? And writing was born. And what writing allows is expansion of the database, because things are not dependent on the the wetware of human memory to survive from generation to generation suddenly the mush of brain is replaced by the durability of wood and stone and clay and these things then become the medium upon which the primary database of the culture is being carried forward well the rest of the story you know and this is not a lecture in the history of communication Each Succeeding refinement in communication has brought the word deeper into its association with the flesh until the present. And at this moment, there is a kind of a, uh, what dynamicists call a cusp, a turning of the system upon its axes.
0: All right, this is Mike. You are listening to Radio Orbit. And that was the first segment of Light of the Third Millennium. Radio Orbit bringing you Terrence McKenna tonight. And we'll bring you more of that in just a minute. I'll have the rest of that uh, presentation coming up for the rest of the hour here. Okay, in the meantime, let's take a quick break here. We'll play a little bit of music. Some more from C3. And this is from uh, version 11, V11 I think this is. Anyway, more C3 and we'll have a little bit more music from them as we move along through the program tonight. And we'll be back in just a few minutes with more Terrence McKenna. This is Mike. you listen to Radio Orbit. <laughs> Right. more stuff there from C3 this is Mike and you're listening to Radio Orbit let's get right back to it and uh, Terrence McKenna Light of the Third Millennium we'll have another break in about uh, 18 minutes this is Mike, you're to Radio Orbit
1: and the word is now beginning to make the return journey to the mysterious and hidden source from which it Descended. In other words, spirit is now beginning to disentangle itself from matter. The 20th century will be remembered as the great clash point or the great arena of conflict between the triumphal positivist and rational systems that European thought has developed over the past 300 years and the new irrational systems of thought which anthropology cheerfully imported into white high culture in the guise of reportage about the primitive. But this reportage about the primitive turns out to be a kind of ouroboric conundrum the snake taking its tail in its mouth. In the past hundred years, as these super technologies have been developed in the West, the smashing of atoms, the invention of of radio, television, computers, immunology, so forth and so on, data has been arriving about the practices of Aboriginal cultures all over the planet that they dissolve ordinary realities, ordinary cultural values, through an interaction, a symbiosis, a relationship to local plants that perturb brain chemistry. And in this domain of perturbed brain chemistry, the cultural operating system is wiped clean. And something older, even for these people, something older, more vitalistic, more in touch with the animal soul replaces it, replaces the cultural operating system. Something not determined by history and geography but something writ in the language of the flesh itself. This is who you are. This is true nakedness. You are not naked when you take off your clothes. You still wear your religious assumptions, your prejudices, your fears, your illusions, your delusions. When you shed the cultural operating system, then essentially you stand naked before the inspection of your own psyche. Desmond Morris called it the naked ape. And it's from that position, a position outside the cultural operating system, that we can begin to ask real questions about what does it mean to be human, what kind of circumstance are we caught in, and what kind of structures if any can we put in place to assuage the pain and accentuate the glory and the wonder that lurks waiting for us in this very narrow slice of time between the birth canal and the yawning grave. In other words, we have to return to first premises. So I've been thinking about this a lot, and at first it seemed to me only a metaphor, this phrase, culture is your operating system. But because I travel around a lot and get that jolting experience frequently, of, let's say, leaving London on a foggy evening and arriving in Johannesburg 14 hours later to a sweltering day in a city of 14 million on the brink of anarchy, I get to change my operating system frequently. And so I notice the relativity of these systems. And some work for some things and some for others. For instance, if you are a positivist, if you're running Positivism 4.0, you can't support UFOs. Positivism 4.0 does not support UFOs. If, on the other hand, you're running Urantia Book 5.1 as your operating system, uh, UFOs and a number of other things can get in through the door. That is what we would technically say is a more tolerant operating system, or its plug-in support special effects denied the, the positivist. Well, uh, it, it's fun to think this way, because it shows you that you're, you don't have to be the victim of your culture. It's not like your eye color or your height or your gender. Uh, it's, it's fragile. It can be remade if you wish it to be. And then the question is, well, how, do, how does one uh, uh, download a new operating system? Well, first of all, you have to clear some space on your disk. Uh, The best way to do this is probably with a pharmacological agent. Um, You think of some while I have a drink of water. Psilocybin is an excellent disc cleaner. Uh, You can put a lot of things in the trash and have them just disappear Uh, with a uh, psilocybin upgrade. Uh, Other pharmacological agents that will clear your disc are uh, ayahuasca. And, of course, these are gentle clearings of the disc, which take five, six, seven hours. uh, If you're in a hurry to dump that old data and leap right into the new operating system, uh, click on the button marked dimethyltryptamine. Uh, a compressed disc erasure will immediately be downloaded, unstuffed, bin hexed, implemented, installed, run, and, uh, and you will find yourself with an entirely different head. Um, now, shamans have always... Known, though they may not have used the kind of language I'm using here. Shamans have always known this trick. What trick? It has two facets. First of all, that culture is an operating system. That's all it is. And that the operating system can be wiped out and replaced by something else. So in essentially... What's going on among shamans and those who resort to them uh, for curing and and counseling and so forth is somebody's running a slightly more advanced operating system than the customer. Uh, the, The shaman is in possession of certain facts about plants, about animals, about healing, about human psychology, about the local geography, about mojo of many different sorts that the client is not aware of. The client is running culture light. The shaman paid for the registered and licensed version of the software and uh, is running a much heavier version of the software than the client. I think we should all aspire to make this upgrade. Uh, it's very important that you have all the bells and whistles uh, on your operating system. Otherwise, somebody is going to be able to get a leg up uh, on you. Well, what's wrong with the operating system that we have? Uh, consumer capitalism 5.0 or whatever it is. Well, it's dumb. Uh, It's retro, it's very non-competitive, it's messy, it wastes the environment, it wastes human resources, Uh, it's inefficient, it runs on stereotypes, it runs on a low sampling rate which is what creates stereotypes. Low sample rates uh, make uh, everybody appear alike when in fact the glory is in everyone's differences. Uh, And the current operating system uh, is flawed. It actually has bugs in it uh, that generate contradictions. Contradictions such as we're cutting the earth from beneath our own feet. We're poisoning the atmosphere that we breathe. This is not intelligent behavior. This is a culture with a bug in its operating system that's making it produce erratic, dysfunctional, malfunctional behavior. Time to call a tech. And who are the techs? The shamans are the techs. Well, so I think you get the idea. Uh, very important to upgrade your operating system by dumping obsolete cultural subroutines. They are simply taking up disk space. They are not advancing uh, you in any way whatsoever. Now a very large group of people who followed this advice and rebuilt their operating systems in the 1960s went on then to build this most amazing of all cultural artifacts the internet the internet is light at the end of the tunnel I don't care if it's being used to peddle pornography I don't care if it's being trivialized in a thousand ways anything can be trivialized the important point is that It is leveling the playing field of global society. It is creating de facto an entirely new set of political realities. None of the constipated oligarchic structures that are resisting this were ever asked. Their greed betrayed them into investing in this in the first place without ever fully grasping what the implications of it were for their larger agenda. The Internet basically means you can now be as as free as you are motivated to be, as free as you dare to be. Uh, Tim Leary, years ago, it was something he used to say that never got quoted as much as turn on, tune in, drop out, but it seemed to me It it was maybe better advice. And he used to say, find the others. Find the others. Well, you know, if you're a gay kid in Fargo, North Dakota, if you're a mescaline enthusiast in Winnipeg, if you're a student of alchemy in Moose Jaw, community is pretty much out of reach uh, for you or it was until the coming of the internet and the internet introduces everybody no matter how weird, no matter how marginalized, no matter how peculiar to the fact that there are others like you there are others like you find the others make common cause uh... realize that uh, It's the deals you cut and the friends you make that determine where you're going to be standing when the flash hits. I mean, that's just obvious. And by... You see, the cultural game is a game of uniformitarianism. Cultural myths are that we are all alike. We Americans. Each created equal I mean if you can believe that at an operational level then I have some bridges I would like to sell you uh, it, it's a necessary truth to do political business but it is not the truth the truth is that you are not created equal with yourself from day to day leave alone any comparison with anybody else. You are not the person you were yesterday, nor the person you will be next week. What is an observation like that? Uh, What shadow does it cast in a world of all people are created equal? Uh, These are clashes of operating systems. There's an axiom in one, all created equal, and an axiom in the other, each divergent, these things can't be parsed. They can't be brought together. So, culture plays a game of simplification. If you can make people think alike, they will buy alike, they will worship alike, and if, you know, politics demands it, they will kill alike. So, the uniformitarian agenda of culture is not an agenda friendly to you, or to me, or to any other individual. And if you start out from that point of view, you will soon realize that culture is not your friend. Now this is not exactly PC to say, what with everybody running around recovering their Latvian roots and their Irishness and their this, their whatever, culture is not your friend. If you define yourself as a member of a group of any group know that that is a gross simplification and that everything about you that is interesting and unique is betrayed by defining yourself in that way. Uh, You know, most racism is practiced by people of the race that they are making racial judgments about. White people have far more racial opinions about white people than any other racial group because that's where they spend their time. These gross simplifications betray humanity, betray uniqueness, make sane politics impossible. What we have to do is get back to the reality of the flesh, the reality of the individual identity. This is how we come packaged. Uh, A race, that's an abstraction. These days you have to have three years of genetics under your belt to give a satisfactory definition of the word if we're really going to go to the math on it. I mean, it's an, it's, an, it's an abstraction of modern science. It's a notion so far removed from anything you and I come in contact with that we should just junk it. What we need to celebrate is the individual. It's, have you not noticed, I certainly have, that every historical change you can think of in fact, any change you can think of, forget about human beings, any change in any system that you can think of is always ultimately traceable to one unit in the system undergoing a phase state change of some sort. No group, there are no group decisions. Those things come later. The genius of creativity and of initiation of activity always lies uh, with the individual. And it's very interesting that this is what the psychedelics address. They address us uniquely as individuals. You can sit next to somebody who drank from the same bottle you did and be perfectly confident that their experience has very little congruency Uh, With your own.
0: All right, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll take a quick break here, listen to a little bit more music from C3. Another piece off of Orbit 1. This particular song is called First Sun. That's apropos, uh, considering who we're listening to right now. And we'll be back with the conclusion of uh, Light of the Third Millennium uh, with Terrence McKenna. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. All right, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. Let's get right back to this piece from Terence McKenna. We'll be back with you in about 22 minutes. Enjoy the rest of this.
1: If we um, let the scales of cultural values fall from our eyes and try not to look at the world through the eyes of science or democracy or capitalism or christianity what what is there beyond ideology? What are the facts of the matter? as I see it, uh, the most visible facts on the on the surface of things, on the surface of being, I see the law of increasing complexity. Things have gotten more complicated through time. I I have never met anyone who could successfully argue against this. That doesn't mean it's true, but it means that it may be, as Wittgenstein used to say, true enough. True enough. That as you approach the present moment, in the only area of the universe which we have accurate data about, which is this planet, things have things become more complicated. Uh, a million years ago, there were no human civilizations. A thousand years ago, there were no machines to speak of. A hundred years ago, there was no communication infrastructure to speak of. Ten years ago, there was no Internet. Eighteen months ago, there was no Java. Uh, Things are complexifying, intensifying, moving together. This is the universal drama that is reaching culmination in our lifetimes. Because, and I offer this, don't believe me for God's sake, don't believe anybody, just take this stuff in and then measure it against your own experience. The second extracultural fact that I've been able to discern, the first being, things get more complicated as you approach the present, and the second being, that process of complexification is occurring faster and faster. The early universe was very slow moving. It took a long time for things to cool down and life To begin its agonizing march out of the slime into animal form, meeting extinction and catastrophe and setback after setback, but always picking itself up literally out of the mud and moving forward. Well, as life left the ocean, the pace of evolution quickened. As life radiated across the land. Uh, the number of, of Phyla multiplied the number of species multiplied finally a million years ago pick a number a million and a half years ago The higher primates begin to use tools fire enters the picture and just as an aside isn't it interesting how long people used tools and fire before spoken language enters the picture I mean we possess tools A million years old, human tools. Language, 35,000 years old. When I was in South Africa last year, I was in this place that reminded me of like the Four Corners area around Moab, Utah. It was like nothing like I had expected South Africa to be. And when I wasn't teaching, I would wander the dry arroyos and hunt for human tools. And there was an archaeologist staying in the bar, or in the hotel there, and we would drink in the evening in the bar. And I would lay my day's find out on the bar. And he would sort it into piles. he'd say, nothing in this pile is less than 165,000 years old. Everything in this pile is from human tools we're talking about. Now I've lost my thread because I was so thrilled with my sidebar. Uh, I think I can get it back. Ah, yeah, here it is. Here it is. (laughs) And they say potheads, can't think. Here it is. The the second obvious fact which haunts the post-cultural viewpoint is this acceleration of change. And I've sort of built my career on this because I'm a rationalist, but I feel the emotional power of this thing. We are, in, we are caught in a basin of attraction, to use a mathematical term. In other words, we are under the influence of something which is pulling us into the future, or into novelty, if you want to put it that way, at a faster and faster rate. So problems which are presented in the following terms If we don't do something in 500 years, we will run out of this, that, or the other. Or, if we don't do something in a thousand years, this or that will happen. These are meaningless statistics because the uh, acceleration into novelty is rewriting the rules now every 18 months. we, we are descending now into a well of novelty such that more change is now occurring in a single human lifetime than occurred in the previous 10,000 years of human history. We are approaching at a faster and faster rate something unthinkable, something which is sculpting us in its image, something which shamans have always Known was there, though they may not have used the metaphor of ahead of us in time. That's a Western download of where it is, because you could just as well say it's in heaven, or behind us in time, or everywhere, or nowhere. The point is, we're about to arrive in its presence, and uh, it is shaping us to prepare us for the arrival it is making us more and more in its image. This is not a new process. This began a long, long time ago. But it's now reaching its culmination. And I said a few minutes ago, the Internet is light at the end of the tunnel. The Internet is the beginning of a nervous system that is knitting not only all human beings, but all life together, all information together because you know there already is an internet it's called the integrated ecosystem of planet three it runs on pheromones it runs on weather systems ocean tides telluric currents moving in the earth uh, thousands of methods it that way because our cultural tradition is one of reductionism: tear things apart, break them into their subordinate units, break those into still smaller units. Well, when you have a theory of reality like that, what you end up with is all the pieces spread out and no car and nowhere to go. Uh, but nature has always operated as an integrated system of communication. And the Internet is, in a sense, nothing more than a human aping of a natural system already in place. If we could do it through pheromones, light, mycelium, and electromagnetic pulses through the Earth, we wouldn't be stringing copper and cable and fiber optic. Those things are simply um, historical artifacts of the moment. What lies ahead on the internet? What lies ahead, I think, for us? And this is the last point I really want to make. And then we can talk about all this, is you know, I have been a true resistor of the alien penetration of human civilization because I just saw no evidence for it. But the the chant that they are coming has now grown so loud that I feel like one sort of has to ask oneself, well, short of just 100% skepticism, what the hell is going on with this alien hype? And I think that the problem is one of modeling and intelligence. There is an alien. We are in the cultural process of meeting this alien, but they do not come in thousand-ton beryllium ships from Zeneble to trade high technology for human fetal tissue. I mean, that, if you, that's an intelligence test, folks. Uh, that's not how it works. Uh, our own hysteria, makes it very difficult for us to deal with the presence of the alien and the alien knows that. That's why it has disguised itself as a psychedelic experience, I think. Uh, Where You know how in all those 50s B science fiction movies there was always this theme of the landing area? and I saw it in Mars attacks, too. There must be a landing zone. Somehow we must let them know that we welcome them by building a landing area. And the Nazca plane has been claimed and on and on and on. I think
0: the alien
1: is a creature of pure information. It's purely information. It's non-local. It comes out of the bell non-locality part of the universe that exists distributed through hyperspace. The alien is real, but it is only made of information. And therefore, the only dimension in which it can be encountered is a dimension of pure information. Fortunately, We are building a dimension of pure information. Providentially we have named it the net. The net is a net for catching the alien mind. How will it come? Will it descend upon our websites in a flash of light? I don't think so. How it will come is hacked through human fingers. The alien is real but it is within us. It can only communicate information. And that information has to be made real in this world by human coders. So, if we were to set out light-heartedly to build a virtual reality as alien as we could make it, I maintain that three-quarters of the way, our hair would be standing on end. Because we would realize we are not inventing this. We are discovering it. You know, Michelangelo said, uh, the form is in the block of marble. What I do is I take away the part that is unnecessary and reveal the human torso within the block of marble. In the same way, the alien is already within us. But we must model it. We must call it forth into a dimension of potential dialogue. And I think that ultimately this is what high-tech society can bring to the shamanic equation. Uh, Shamans have been dealing with spirits, entities, powers for more than a hundred thousand years. But it has always been on a one-to-one basis. One human being at a time went up Mount Sinai to talk to the fire on the mountain. But with virtual reality, we have a technology that allows us to show each other our dreams and, yes, our hallucinations. And as we begin to show each other the contents of our own heads and as we begin to explore the alien Niagara's of beauty that pour through your consciousness under the influence of some of these substances, we are going to discover that we are not what we thought we were. The, the monkey flesh is penetrated by something, dare I say it, divine, or at least alien, transplanetary and beyond the power of human comprehension. I don't know if we're talking about God Almighty here. I don't know if we're talking about the God who hung the stars like lamps in heaven, as Milton says. That seems a tall order. Maybe what we're talking about is the God of biology. Uh, Something has happened to this planet it has become infected with an informational call it virus, call it force, call it being that is using matter and yes, using our flesh and our thoughts to bootstrap itself to higher and higher levels and now the prosthesis of machinery and the possibility of an artificial intelligence raises the real option of producing, of actually midwifing, the birth of an entirely new, not species, but order of biological and intelligence in existence. The human-machine symbiote is upon us. I mean, it's been with us for a while, since the first wheel was carved, since the first stick was sharpened. But that was all very simple stuff. Now it's clear that we are in partnership with an other mind which comes to us through our machineries and through the biosphere. Wherever we press beyond the thin curtain of rationalist culture we discover the incredibly rich, erotic, scary, promising presence of this intelligent other which beckons us out of history and says, you know, the galaxy lies waiting. A galaxy of galaxies lie waiting. Lose the encumbrances of three-dimensional space return with the word to its higher and hidden source and at that point you will discover the alchemical uh, 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 paraclete will be given unto you the alchemical dispensation will be given and As James Joyce said, man will be dirigible. (laughs) What did he mean? (laughs) He he meant that we will lose the limitations of physical and three-dimensional space. That we are destined to become mental creatures. You say, well, isn't this a terrible thing? What about this, that, and the other? All the things you're worrying about, we turned our back on 25,000 years ago. We have been marching through this virtual reality of our own creation for the entire duration of what is called human history. Now, uh, is there a political implication to all of this? I think the political implication is A, a personal one. We all must try to understand what is happening. We need to try to understand what is happening. And in my humble opinion, ideology is only going to get in your way. Nobody understands what is happening. Not Buddhists, not Christians, not government scientists, not, you know, no one understands what is happening. So forget ideologies. They betray, they limit they lead astray. Just deal with the raw data and trust yourself. Nobody is smarter than you are. And what if they are? What good is their understanding doing you? People who walk around saying, well, I don't understand quantum physics, but somewhere somebody understands it. That's not a very helpful attitude toward preserving the insights of quantum physics. Inform yourself. What does inform yourself mean? It means, A, transcend and mistrust ideology. Go for direct experience. What do you think when you face the waterfall? What do you think when you have sex? What do you think when you take psilocybin? Everything else is unconfirmable rumor, useless, probably lies. So liberate yourself from the illusion of culture. Take responsibility for what you think and what you do. And then the other political implication toward community is a lot of people are going to be very anxious because change raises anxiety in people. And people who have limited opportunities to educate themselves because of Cultural, culturally inflicted abuse are scared because they can sense that everything familiar is giving way but they don't want to embrace the unimaginable these people need to be reassured they need to be reassured by example and by hearing optimistic and reasonable rhetoric about the future. Selling the future as an eight alarm fire, which is how the media does it, uh, only makes the same future impossible. So we need a responsible approach to thinking about the future. And it means taking personal responsibility for your drug taking, for the ideas, the means that you push into society and for the images that we share among ourselves. You know, one of the great truisms of the new age is that images can heal. But I've never heard anybody discuss the obvious contra-implication, which is images can make you sick and you are constantly bombarded with images which disempower, divide, confuse, and, and, and make crazy, basically. So I think the reason psychedelics are such political dynamite in any culture is because they dissolve cultural assumptions. The scales fall from people's eyes and they say, does this make sense? Does my job make sense? Does my relationship make sense to my significant other, to my government, to my children? to my environment, do these relationships make sense? And of course, the answer for most people in high-tech society is no. We've been compromised, we've been deluded, we've been sold a massive pottage. The way out then is personal responsibility, new operating systems downloaded from outside of culture, which means from the deeper wisdom of the psychedelic plants And then a commitment to community and a motto of to the future without fear. Without fear. Thank you very much.
0: All right, there you have it. Uh, Terrence McKenna's Light of the Third Millennium, recorded in 1997. Uh, in Austin, Texas. I hope you enjoyed it. All right, so that was uh, Terrence, and I miss him, and I love him, and I hope you all enjoyed it. If you never heard him before, hopefully uh, it uh, made an impression on you. If not, well, uh, another time perhaps. All right, so what we're going to do is continue with it a little bit. I've got a great presentation here that... uh I'm simply going to call Terence Version 6.0 that was made by my good friend and webmaster Larry Norager. It's a really cool production that he put together over the last couple of weeks. And uh, if you like music and you like the spoken word sort of thing, well, this would be a great one uh, to add to your collection. So, as I said before, it's a good time to maybe uh, put on the uh, tape recorder, the digital recorder on your computer, whatever, and hit play. Actually, no, I'll hit play. You hit record. All right? And check it out. Larry Norriger. And this production, once again, is called Terrence, version 6.0.
1: that the universe is some kind I think that there's something that has been overlooked by science called and I'll name it it's called novelty the universe is a novelty conserving engine of some sort from the very first nanoseconds after the Big Bang novelty has been conserving itself and building newer and deeper levels of novelty on novelty already achieved so that, uh, you know, in the first few, I mean, you have the Big Bang, then you have this era called the pre-physical era. It's brief. It lasts the amount of time it takes light to cross a distance equivalent to the diameter of the proton, electron, something dinky for sure. That's called the era before physics. Then physics begins, one jippy after that. And, and the original universe was so hot that, there were, that it was a plasma of free electrons. So since it was a plasma, there was nothing that you could call atomic physics because the, the ambient temperature was so high that electrons could not settle down into stable orbitals around nuclei. As the temperature of the universe fell, atomic systems crystallized out of that plasmic environment. Well then, um, further cooling of the universe leads to more complex kinds of bonds. and the cooking out of complex elements from stars. The original universe was made entirely of hydrogen. This hydrogen aggregated into masses so, uh, dense, so large that at their centers there was actually... and if you think I'm not nervous doing this in front of you, you're crazy. <laughs> the, these aggregates of hydrogen uh, at the center, it was so massive in temperature and pressure that fusion could actually begin and fusion cooked out heavier elements iron, sulfur, and eventually carbon Well, when you get four-valent carbon this throws open the doorway to tremendous new novelty you get now for the first time not atomic systems but molecular systems these molecular systems lead into proto-biological systems Protobiological systems lead into uh, prokaryotes, then eukaryotes, then true higher multicellular animals, then mammals, then human beings, then electronic culture, then the big surprise. Now, the thing to notice about all this is that novelty keeps building on novelty already achieved. It crosses biological lines, atomic lines, molecular lines. It is a law of the universe. I'm proposing that novelty is conserved. And so then what we represent is the kind of ultimate nexus of novelty. And I believe that, you know, we are being wound tighter and tighter and tighter into a confrontation with the equivalent of the singularity at the center of a black hole. But it isn't a gravitational singularity that I'm talking about, it's a novelty. Singularity, and so you know the universe is growing toward some kind of ultimate state of boundaryless hyperconnectivity. And when that is achieved, uh, the the process will be cease to be describable in the locus of ordinary space, time, and energy. Now science has no notion of this concept of novelty. In the East there is such a concept it's called Tao and Tao builds things up and pulls them down according to its own mysterious laws tomorrow I will argue when we get the computer that its laws are not in fact entirely mysterious and that we can discover uh, the nature of, of the novelty constant And instead of treating space-time as an absolutely featureless plane, we can take that zero value, which is how that shows up in the Newtonian mechanics, and substitute instead a, a fractal dimension number, which will be some kind of decimal fraction between one and two, and then this will allow us to do things previously inconceivable, like predict the future and stuff like that. See, uh, one thing I guess I should say, since we've sort of drifted into this fairly rappy place, is um, the idea that um, the the universe is um, the universe is growing toward itself. It's not moving outward from its origin. It's moving toward its completion. And this is called teleology. It's very unwelcome in most scientific modeling. But that's a legacy from the 19th century, where they were so concerned to get God out of the picture that they wanted everything to happen through one random process, colliding with another random process, and flipping out mule, deer, elephants, and redwood trees. But, in principle, we don't have to believe in God to believe in an attractor at the end of the process. We see many kinds of attractors in uh, in the natural world. One way that I think of the psychedelic experience is, uh, you know, you've heard me talk about hyperspace, superspace, this kind of thing. It it really does seem to me that um, reality is some kind of a very complex geometric object of some sort and you know how they teach you in trigonometry that all possible ellipses can be obtained by sectioning a cone and that if you take the infinite set of ellipses and reconstruct them you can reconstruct the cone. Well the way I think of psychedelics and psychedelic tripping is you are sectioning a hyperdimensional object and what you're coming back with is a lower dimensional map of this higher dimensional object. Well everybody has a different map in the same way that there are an infinite number of elliptical sections of a cone, but they're all generated by the same object. And if it's a mystery to you how a simple finite object like a cone can generate an infinite number of elliptical sections, then it's going to be hard for you to understand how everybody can have a different psychedelic trip and yet be actually dealing with the same uh, reality in hyperspace. Here we are at the end of history, all the world's cultures are melting together. More powerful technologies than we've ever imagined are now in existence. Our political assumptions are in flux. Our environment is being destroyed before our very eyes. Uh, All kinds of spiritual and religious prophets are selling their wares in the streets. So my uh, take on all this is basically simply to ask the the Mr. Natural question, which is, what does it all mean? How did we, essentially an arboreal primate, uh, ever get into a situation uh, of the sort represented by the end of the 20th century. Is it, uh, is it a mad play without meaning? Is it the unfolding of God's plan? Is it the protocol of the elders of Zion or the alien invaders? Uh, just what is going on? And, of course, the special lens that I bring to this is the much maligned and highly suspect psychedelic experience anathema to some religion to others Uh, one of the most controversial behaviors uh, available to 20th century people but one that I think is probably very important to recapturing a sense of personal wholeness and then trying to fit oneself into this truly mad mad world that we've called into being plant based Indoles such as psilocybin, uh, DMT, uh, mescaline, the combinatory Amazonian, uh, thing called ayahuasca. These are all psychedelic plants and plant mixtures with very long histories of human usage in non-Western society. Western society is the most phobic of all cultures toward the psychedelic experience it's almost on a par with our phobia towards sexuality in fact maybe these things are linked but in aboriginal and traditional cultures around the world spirituality has always been associated with dissolving of ordinary cultural boundaries and states of mind and you know you can do this with meditation and fasting and abandonment in the wilderness and so forth and so on but the most the uh, effective and non-invasive way to approach this, everyone agrees, is through uh, ingestion of psychedelic plants. Culture is essentially a product of the imagination. All our religions, our technical accomplishments, our literature, our poetry, all products of the imagination. This is precisely the domain where these psychedelics impact uh, very, very powerfully. Uh, So if we believe that invention, creativity, individual self-expression, insight, if we value these things, then the psychedelics are primary uh, items in our cultural toolbox because they empower all of those things. It's curious to me that Western civilization, which invented the idea of progress through technology and social transformation, is so phobic of this uh, factor in nature which would accelerate those tendencies in our own culture. So. I think uh, there is something for our culture in psychedelics, and there is definitely something uh, for the individual. You know, in a way, culture is like software. It's the operating system in the local area. You download being a uh, we tribesmen, tribesmen or a Hong Kong stockbroker, and then behaviors are prescribed. But uh, naive people tend to be- believe that these operating systems are reality. They're not reality. It's just something you learn as you grow up in a certain time and place. Psychedelics seem to dissolve cultural conditioning. This is one of the things that makes them such political dynamite. Because the business of political systems is to convince you of the local operating system, convince you it was sent from God and is beyond critique, when in fact it's just a bunch of rules fellow monkeys push together over time to make things easier for the alpha male, flooding your mind with information. And these things have intimations of the distant past, the far future, alien connections of some sort it's definitely magnifying our own set of cultural uh, preconceptions and obsessions but it's also putting information in there that we could not ordinarily imagine and for me the sine qua non of the psychedelic experience is when I look at the contents of my own mind and say to myself I could not have imagined this to me that's proof that some kind of communication is taking place. A person lying in silent darkness has the impression that in a half an hour they're seeing more art of higher quality than the entire Western canon has produced in the last thousand years. This Niagara of alien and unpredictable beauty is pouring through your head. The challenge, to my mind, after 30 years of being involved in all this, is A, to have the experience, to have it in an attitude of, uh, of appreciation and calmness, but the, the second implication is somewhat political. It's to communicate the vision through words, through painting, through animation. Science has great pretensions about itself. I mean, it basically regards itself as a meta-theory. It regards itself as capable of passing judgment on all other theories. They are supposed to submit themselves to science to be told whether they're real or not. Yeah, like a religion. Well, how many people know... Uh, the, you know, modern science was founded by Rene Descartes, in, uh, in the uh, early 17th century. What were the circumstances under which Descartes founded modern science? Rene Descartes was a 19-year-old, uh, basically ne'er-do-well, and he decided that he would go wenching and soldiering across Europe, which was a thing that young men of certain class did. At that time, and so he joined a Habsburg army that was laying siege to Prague in the in the summer of 1619. And after they had taken care of the problem there in Prague, this Habsburg army began to retreat across southern Germany. And in the on the evening of uh, now, there's a lot of arm wrestling about this. But let's just say the 17th of August, 1619. This army made camp near the little town of Ulm in southern Germany, which synchronicity freaks pay attention. Ulm will later be the birthplace of Albert Einstein, worth noting. But that night, Descartes in the barracks uh, had a dream and an angel appeared to him and the angel said, uh, the conquest of nature is to be achieved through number and measurement. And he was thunderstruck. He took that angelic revelation and turned it into modern science. Modern science was founded by an angel. You know, they don't tell you this at MIT. Uh, You know, it's astonishing. Uh, how how uh, things which claim roots in rationalism are actually among some of the most irrational productions uh, in the historical continuum. It's, it appears that our development, our history, our histories have always been uh, created at the promptings of invisible voices. I mean, Socrates who is at the very center of what's called thinking by Western civilization. Socrates had a demon, D-E-A-M-O-N. It was a little voice. It told. It was his crap detector. It told him the difference between profound philosophical thinking and bullpucky. And uh, so, you know, the edifice of Western thinking built on Platonism owes its debt to an invisible agency speaking from hyperspace. So does modern science a la Descartes. How much more of this? I mean, we don't care if artists talk to angels because we, our definition of them is that they're screwballs. Uh, but to, uh, 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 to believe that an, uh, uh, an enterprise like modern science has to trace its way back to the same ecstatic roots is, I think, uh, very suggestive that the world is stranger than we can suppose, and that we need to open these channels of communication to these invisible worlds. Probably the next great paradigm shift will be enunciated by a mushroom, an angel, an elf, an alien, what have you. The New Testament is a group of accounts that were able to survive the sorting process of the Council of Nicaea. And there was a huge literature which was just tossed out as being too weird. I mean, read the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas. Had you all, have you all looked at uh, the Nag Hammadi Library? The Nagha, do you know what this is? The Nag Hammadi Library is, was, is 42 texts which were dug up in Upper Egypt in 1948 at a Coptic monastery called Cenoboschion. Forty-two texts that went into the ground A.D. 220. means nobody has been able to put a finger on them since A.D. 220. It's like a fossil of Christianity in the third century. Well, my God! You can barely map it on to the cheerful religion that we inherit as Christianity. I mean, it is an exotic and complicated uh, situation. Darwin's insight was vast and deep and what he offered was an explanation for how rainbow trout come to be, monarch butterflies, redwood trees, herds of elephants, so forth and so on. What it doesn't address is us. We are the weird bird on the block. I mean, yes, we're some kind of monkey, but when you stand us next to our nearest relative it's very, very clear that it is not a very near relative it doesn't look like us much certainly doesn't act like us what's the deal with human beings? and I think that um, you know how all these religions these Western religions have built in this idea of the end of the world and they're always running around expecting the Messiah or something. And this, to the scientific mind, is just the final proof of the pudding that these people have water between the ears Uh, because science just says, you know, that's just ridiculous. I mean, uh, but I wonder, I wonder... I mentioned just a minute ago these curves that when you propagate them into the future everything leads to the unimaginable and it's all within the next 50 years. So uh, I sort of think as human beings as uh, analogous to iron filings on a piece of paper and you shake these iron filings out of a salt shaker or something and there they lie randomly arranged in heaps well then you come underneath the paper with a very powerful magnet and lo and behold these little iron filings coherently arrange themselves into this beautiful double mustache pattern which I'm sure you've all seen well I think that there is a, an enormous punchline to the historical process that no, very very few people suspect and that what history is it's what happens to an animal who falls under the influence of a kind of strange attractor and that we are being pulled into a well of transformative intentionality history is not pushed by the casuistry of war, migration uh, imperial dynastic families and stuff like that. History is pulled toward an unimaginable something which is continuously trying to mirror itself in us. This is why these Egyptians said, you know, I don't know what it is, but I just think we should really build a big, simple building. Say, I, I don't know why, but I'm gonna enslave fifty thousand people and do it and don't ask me why. And this is and you know, this is the same force that reared Shark Cathedral. This is the same force that created the space shuttle. We are in a relationship to an unseen something which we keep trying to image with our mythologies, our religions, our technologies, our epiphanies. And I think that uh, it's not so far away that it, do, it isn't 10,000 years in the future. It is sometime in the next 50 years and that this is what history was for. You see, history is an incredibly peculiar and brief phenomenon. I mean, viewed from the point of view of biology, it's less time than it takes for a new species to emerge. I mean, let's call history 25,000 years. You know, in, in frame one, you're chipping flint. In frame two, you're hurling an instrument toward Alpha Centura. Like that, this happened. Well, what's happening? It's that mind itself is being pulled out of this creature, and it's being given hands, and languages and post-symbolic systems in order to image the unspeakable. The unspeakable, I call it the transcendental object at the end of time. It casts, it's in another dimension, it's in a kind of super space. And what it casts into history is the enormous shadow of its eminence. This is what straight people call God. This is what all these visionaries are raving about. It's that when you sink beneath the surface of ordinary causality and mundane ho what you discover is this enormous transcendental object, which you could call it, you know, the sacred heart of Jesus, or the flying saucer, or the philosopher's stone. It's all of those things. And much, much more. It's not only stranger than you suppose, it's stranger than you can suppose. And it has called us out of animal organization over a 25,000 year period. We hang in the balance and then we meet it and we're going to meet it. That's the light at the end of that birth canal of transcendence that I referred to. The chain that actually pictures the ebb and flow in this world of ours of a quality which science does not recognize, uh, Western science, a quality which in the East is called Tao, but which I chose to call, after Alfred North Whitehead, novelty. And it's an invisible something in the world which causes investments to succeed movies to do well relationships to flourish or the opposite in its absence and we can't see or feel this stuff in the world but it builds things up and it tears them down at every level empires whole species uh relationships it's happening on every level of time and it can actually be pictured as a as a graph, like a stock market graph, novelty ebbing and flowing. Well, to cut to the chase on this, the bottom line in this kind of thinking is the ability to predict not only the future, which is pretty much a fire-free zone, uh, but also to predict the past, to lay these novelty graphs out over the past 2,000 years of invention, migration, pogrom, and so forth, and to see that when society is inventive, creative, productive, novelty is increasing according to this mathematical theory. Similarly, societies that are restricting freedoms, very constipated, very uh, restrictive in their approach to reality, these register on this graph as societies ruled by the opposite of novelty, which I call habit. So all of reality, can be seen as a kind of dynamic struggle between habit and novelty, each trying to get the upper hand over the other. And this can all be mathematically modeled out of the I Ching. But you see, the thing that's so puzzling to people about the E Ching is that it works, and yet it's as occult as uh, the tarot or throwing the bones or any other of these contemptuously dismissed occult methodologies. But very scientifically minded people have been impressed by the fact that the e chain works. So I set out to figure out why and how it worked, and I wrote about this in the Invisible Landscape and have published software. and uh, It's my unique uh, contribution to 20th century ideology. Psychedelics are advocated and defended by many people from many different perspectives, but. I, so far as I know, am the only person who has built a complete edifice of uh, explanations of nature, but honestly admitting that the foundations and the inspiration were psychedelic experiences. It not only tells you or gives you this map of novelty of past and future, but for the map of novelty to fit the historical data, you have to swallow the very large and, for a rationalist, uncomfortable conclusion that the end of time itself, or a moment of universal novelty, very difficult to picture through the eyes of ordinary physics, is upon us, lies not that far in the future. And so this has given my career a peculiar spin because here I am basically trying to be a scientific rationalist but now burdened not only with a theory that predicts the future but in the course of predicting the future predicts that in uh, 2012 AD All of the novelty that has been unleashed over the past few billions of years, not only cultural and technological novelty, but the novelty of biology, the novelty of geology, all of these things reach some kind of crescendo of connectivity and intensity within the lifetimes of most of us. I um, basically have a theory of history which says history is not pushed by the events of the past unfolding their causal necessity. Rather, time is pulled into the future by a kind of attractor. And if you want to think of a beginning in a certain point in time, although I think it extends through the whole life of the universe, but imagine that a couple of million years ago, primates quietly living in the canopies of African rainforest got a yin, got a call, felt the touch. And from that point to this, it's been a slow, never faltering march on the part of our species, deeper into... a a world of alien strangeness, a world no other animal knows, a world of symbolic activity driven by the imagination, first songs and stories, and then writing, and then mathematics and language, and then higher and higher technology. We are actually being sculpted in the image of an alien something that is making us like itself, as we approach it through historical time. And some people say, well, this sounds like Christianity in a techno garb. Well, Christianity has a piece of the action. Any religion which spends thousands of years meditating on man's fate is gonna get some part of the story right. And I think the, the, the Christian assumption of an approaching great change, or Art Bell calls it the quickening, Uh, It's all around us. It's perfectly obvious that the 20th century is the culmination of 10,000 years of culture and that beyond the 20th century lies, quite simply, the unimaginable.
0: All right, there you have it. Quite simply... Unimaginable. All right, this is Mike Hayden. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It is about that time. I'm going to turn things over to somebody. Anyway, this is Mike, and I'll be back next week. My guest will be Jay Widner. We'll be talking with Jay live from his home in Washington State, and we'll talk about his new uh, his new production, 2012 Odyssey. It features a whole bunch of interesting people, including John Major Jenkins. Gene Houston, uh, we'll talk about pop culture, talk about alchemy, and enjoy ourselves uh, in a general way. Uh, the music, thanks tonight to C3 and also to Larry Norager. amazing uh, piece of work that he did as well. So great stuff, and I hope you all enjoyed it. This will be available on the web at uh, www.mikehagan.com. And just go over to the archives page. You can download this in the next couple of days. It should be up on the web. And um, next week, the Wimshurst Machine will be providing the music uh, to accompany our interview with Jay Widener. So all that uh, to look forward to and more. Didn't get a chance to read much from the news, but there's lots of stuff going on. Go to the news page on the website. You can find some stuff out there uh, that's interesting, that's happening in the world, out and about. And... Well, I had some other stuff I wanted to talk about, but we just don't have the time. I have some big news, though, some interesting news from my own sort of uh, career that I'll talk with you about next week as well. And thanks to everybody who called while we were uh, listening to Terrence. I'm glad you enjoyed it.